to the Blue Roads Changemaker Podcast. I'm Patty Talbot, CEO and co-founder of Blue Roads Education Group. In this series, you'll hear reflections about what it means to be a homegrown changemaker. We focus interviews around the Blue Roads mantra, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. Our guests are amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who've taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker and or from global citizen to local changemaker by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues close to home and around the globe. I ask participants to tell us about their origins, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, how they work to create solutions, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will help you to hear their stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker Journey, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World. Welcome, everyone. This is part one of a two-part series featuring Changemaker educator Angie Clevenger. I was fortunate to meet Angie at Radford University when I was teaching in the educational leadership program there. She was working on her licensure to be a school principal at the time, and I could tell right away that she was something special. But when I read her writing, I knew that she was way beyond special. Magical is the word I'd use. As you'll hear, Angie has a way of using her sharp intellect inside her southwestern Virginia accent and occasional dialect to surprise you with her wisdom and perspective on the world. You'll see what I mean when you listen into her story that follows. I use the Blue Roads Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World mantra to guide our conversation, as is my habit for these chats with changemakers. In this first portion, we focus on Angie's homegrown roots and lessons learned early in life. She carried her powerful learning into adulthood as a teacher determined to better meet the needs of children like herself whose early role models may leave something to be desired. Listen now. Welcome, everyone. Today, I have the distinct honor of having with me today, Angie Clevenger. And I met Angie as a graduate student at Radford University when I was teaching in the educational leadership program. And she was an awesome person to work with from the very beginning, an amazing writer, an amazing thinker, and uh, lives not too far from me over in Pulaski County. And she has, since that time, moved into administration, and she was a teacher and administrator, and now she'll tell you about her story in finding her way back to the classroom, which is one of the most powerful places to be a changemaker that I know. So, Angie, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're with us today. I'm happy to be here as well. So, Angie, as I told you, we're going to follow our framework of homegrown solutions for a patchwork world in our conversation today, so you can Tell us about your awesome changemaker story. And the first question in the quadrant relates to homegrown. So I'd love it if you would tell us about where you were grown and who your people are and how that makes a difference to who you are today. So the floor is yours. I was born in uh, Rapid, Virginia in 1975 on January the 16th. I was uh, born into a home that 
didn't have plenty as far as resources are concerned. As I grew up, I realized that my parents lacked in many areas, not not to say anything uh, derogatory, but when you look at a cycle of poverty, we often see that those people coming from that background not only come from a place of not having a lot of money, socioeconomically speaking, but they come from a place of trauma. Both of my parents are uh, not an exception to that. And so as I went to school, and, and I think one of the things about poverty is that you see very quickly that you're a little different. It's more of a have-not kind of thing. I look back at my childhood and I try to think about the things that I did have. I had a, a, a neighbor who was called Granny and Pa, and they told stories, old Appalachian stories, and sang a lot of folk music. And I've always liked singing. And when my dad would um, be drunk and possibly spend the night in jail, I would look outside my window and watch for their light to come on. And I would have uh, dinner with them. They had already set me a place. And my mother and father argued quite frequently. Um, Mom came from uh, a home of abuse as well as my father. They just really didn't have the resources or know-how to make relationships work. So I grew up um, very tense and very anxious as a child. And I was a very deep thinker thought about all kinds of things, and I was creative, and I liked to sing. My father was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan for our county, and I was dragged to rallies and and marches, and um, I remember being dragged to such an event and um, seeing a child, an African-American child that was holding up a sign that said, why do you hate me? And I was probably in the fourth grade that year. This was somewhere down south. And I came home from that saying, Dad, I don't hate anybody. And I don't don't like these. But I continued to be dragged. I never had to participate anymore. But I continued to be dragged to rallies. And I saw people. I saw some people in my community who were well-to-do. I saw lawyers. I learned about handshakes. I um, also remember feeling like it was a a scary endeavor. Well, in fifth grade, I got a teacher named John Hawker. He was a black man, and he was my teacher. At the age of nine, I started driving my dad around town or driving when I felt like he was too drunk to drive. And I would say, you you look like you feel sick. Let me drive. So I even remember that day that we had a parent-teacher conference with Mr. Hawker driving my father there. And nobody saw that. He walked in, and my dad, either a week before or maybe even a night before, had been interviewed on the television at a March that he had done. At this point, I was old enough to be shameful of his involvement in such an organization. And Mr. Hawker 
met my father at the door. My dad was a highly functioning alcoholic. And he shook my dad's hand. And everybody in that small town had seen and had talked about my dad being a racist. And he shook his hand and he set him in the chair. And I sat down beside my father. And Mr. Hawker basically had a conference with me. He talked about my writing. He had a portfolio. And he treated my father with the utmost respect. And honestly, my dad was what a lot of people would call poor white trash. He was being of that respect. But Mr. Hawker gave it to him because that man was my dad. And I thought at that point that (laughs) Mr. Hawker was the best human being I had ever met. I thought because my parents talked about court so much and and, uh, being a lawyer so much, I thought that uh, being a lawyer was the biggest and best thing you could ever be. (laughs) I laugh at that now because, you know, the. There's a whole stereotype out there about lawyers. But uh, that was the day that I decided if I ever did do anything with my life, that I'd be an educator. I ceased going to any kinds of rallies. I rebelled against all forms of racism. And I had to go through, all through, growing up a a cognitive dissonance, if you will, about what is reality and what is true. And what I found is true is that everybody on our marble is doing the very best that they can. And they're all a work in progress. But we do have choices. And we have an obligation to challenge the things that we know in our heart to be wrong, that regardless of what religion you follow, comes from a place of love and and not hate. I always say in the mornings when I get up, use this day to make things better than they were yesterday. That has served me well. With the recent things that are going on, I even had to, within the last three years, thinking about my childhood and how I grew up and didn't have a lot, I never in the world would have thought that I was privileged. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I'm poor. I grew up poor and dirt and my family was crazy. What are you talking about? I can't be privileged. But then when I looked at my life and how I've had all of these wonderful teachers and wonderful people that the universe has put in my path to intersect with, I realized that had I been a person of color, that I probably would not be telling the same story. And that's very unfortunate. Um, Mr. Hawker and I have even discussed this, and and, it, and I know you're doing, a, uh, uh, doing this uh, interview and, and web webinar, and I think to myself, well, Mr. Harker's the one who's changed so many lives. So he would talk to me, and he would tell me, you know, that I didn't, he, he would never say you should 
hate your parents or even tell me to believe differently than them. But he would say things like, how are, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? And, I, and nobody ever really talked about that. I'll, I'll just be honest. You, my mother, my mother was pregnant at 13 and miscarried several times, got married at 15, had my brother at 15. Nobody went to college. No, nobody even graduated high school. Um, I did. It's like you went to the high school and you got pregnant. And I managed not to do that. <laughs> and that was a big accomplishment, you know, and I and I know that the things you do to get pregnant, but it did seem in my family, you went to the high school and before you graduated, you got pregnant if you were a girl. And I'll be honest, you know, once I got to college, my mind expanded. I, you know, I was interested in all kinds of subjects. Anthropology is something that's something that's very dear to my heart and I even participated in some programs to do the Craig County project where it talked about the big uh, electrical lines being put up and that having an impact on their culture. One of the things, and it's really funny when I talk about diversity and how that shaped me and how I went through, I did go through this metamorphosis of sorts of examining and questioning things. But, you know, I get back to the, uh, to Mr. Hawker. He should be Dr. Hawker, but <laughs> if he saved as many lives as he saved, because a lot of people here in this community are like, oh, Mr. Hawker really did it for me. Before I went to his class, I'd been in fights. I was down at the principal's office a lot, I'm much like Jamie Jones in those books. You know, she and the principal have a relationship. Well, Mr. Bruce and I had a relationship. I just been there a lot. Because in my family, when you were angry, you hit people. You know, if somebody did something that you didn't like, you hit them. And you fought like cats and dogs. And I noticed it kept getting me in trouble, but I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm thinking to myself, but I'm not a bad kid. And and a lot of times I would justify violence by saying they deserve that. And 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 that's not okay. And but that is a middle class norm that fighting is not okay because fighting is a survival uh, tactic when you live in a neighborhood with some rough people or you. Uh, my mother lived at square after my parents did divorce. I said, square, luckily I didn't have to fight. But you learn not to say, please give me back my ball, which is what you would say, you know, if somebody takes your ball at school and that's a middle class construct, you you say, please give me back my ball. And that's supposed to work. Well, that doesn't work that way in the neighborhood. It's giving me back my ball, you know. <laughs> so I had to learn how to be um, bicultural, if you will, because there were things that I knew worked in certain situations that meet my wants and needs in different environments. So I learned that. And I even play that now. I go and visit my mom. We sit around the table and we have coffee. And if, you know, an aunt comes or a cousin comes, I mean, you know, Speaking with correct grammar, not throwing out some words. I, I mean, I just wouldn't fit in. So everybody has this innate need to belong. And I've, I've always wanted to have that. And for a long time, I felt like this is mainstream society and this is school and this is 
the world of academia. And then here I am over here. And I oftentimes, even as an adult, find it hard to mesh who I am within the confines of that environment and cultural norms. And I am a white woman from Southwest Virginia living in Southwest Virginia. And I find that difficult. I can only imagine how that feels for other people who are not upper middle class white. So as I call WASP, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. I feel like my whole life there's been this, I've got it, and now I'm learning. And now I've got it, and now I'm learning. Learning to me is a spiritual enterprise. If you truly learn, you are changed. And real learning takes making connections with yourself and with your world and trying to make all of that fit in. And when it doesn't, you have to expand. You have to see. You have to make room. And most importantly, you have to change. I did get fulfill my dream of becoming an educator and, and started my first job in 1997 in Floyd County as a part-time English teacher to second grade and then an A. And I got up because they started at 7.30, so I would leave the house at 5.30 to be able to get there on time. And uh, the place I ended up teaching at was very close-minded, and I honestly felt like I was that little house on the prairie because it was like if anybody was laughing or anybody was having fun, someone or something would mention that it was and got this, and I know that's awful, but I kind of got this thing in my head. Well, like, you know, happiness is sin, and from working there, so that was not a good match. So I finally got to come home to Pulaski. And Pulaski is dear to my heart because Pulaski contains all of those teachers, K twelve, who made a difference in my life, and so I felt like I was home. But this was my calling, and it was my job to pay it forward and to pay it back by becoming an educator. Oh, my, the first year was awful. Uh, I've always been very intellectual. You know, some people have a lot of intellectual sense, but no common sense. Well, that was basically me my first year. It was not working like the textbook said it was supposed to be working. That fear of not doing what was best for children. Because I was new, that's when I really became turned on to, I need to read about this. There's pro- Let me talk to some people about what they've done. My first year in Pulaski County, I taught first grade. I had a class of 15. Two years later, 13 of them were enrolled in the special education program. I taught them without an IP, without any identification. And I just really felt like I had let them down. So I did not feel like a great success my first year of teaching. The second year was much better. I had gained some perspective. And a woman down the hallway named Shannon said to me, would you like to go to the Pulaski Education Association's meeting with me? And I said, sure, because I was trying to make some friends. And I had joined my association in Floyd, but only in paper only. Like I had 
signed up like you would. You don't feel much commitment for signing up for Barnes & Noble to get their discount. That's kind of how I treated my first year in the association. Well, I went to the association, and they were talking about, at that meeting, us not having really good textbooks to teach math. And it was awful. I mean, I had a textbook that was older than the hills. They were getting ready to adopt a new one. But somebody on the school board had said that we could just make do with the books that we had, and we could just keep making copies. Well, one, that's more work. And two, it's a misappropriation of the funds that are available to us when we have a textbook fund. We should buy what we need. And I got a little fired up about it. <laughs> so school board off the meeting. And I went down and I spoke with the encouragement of my then principal, Libby Van Sant. I didn't let up. I mean, I spoke and then I wrote everybody on school board a letter. And then I realized children don't vote. They need a voice. And I can do that. I can give them a voice. And I felt so empowered because they, they, we got those textbooks. Now, I know that that wasn't just me. That was a whole association working. Nothing in life that makes really positive change isn't just me or just you. It's a, it's the body collective. So I did that that one year and then I got asked to be secretary. So I became secretary and then I found myself going to the A convention. And they had new bylaws, new business items, legislation. And then I started listening to people across the Commonwealth talking about the things that they felt passionate about. And then we'd vote as a collective to take that on to the Virginia Assembly and try to get legislation passed. And it really all came together then for me. And I was like, wow. Because, you know, when you're in your classroom and you close the door and you have a, a leader that tells you what's going to happen, you kind of get lost in that day-to-day -day running of things. And sometimes you feel helpless because you're like, what can I do? You know, this is what they're doing. Everything in a classroom, everything you're asked to do is first a political decision right down to the chalk that you use. And I made that connection very early. I'll talk about a couple of things that I advocated for while I was there. But one of the things I got really involved in was the Resolutions Committee. And there's a Section E called Civil and Human Rights. And I spent years on that committee because I know that it takes all of those relationships, and those relationships have to, unfortunately, be driven by law. Slavery did not end um, because some good people said, well, we're going to stop having slaves. I believe those life-changing, affirmative civil rights movement could have happened or would have happened had it not been for legislation. And that means political change. It means um, working together and organizing. And I saw my association as that avenue where I could make real change. I can't remember, 
but it was, hasn't been that long ago. But I say that, and it's a decade ago. But there was legislation put forth for breastfeeding. And a lot of teachers, and you would think that this is a, it's a no-brainer in a school, um, because, you know, research says that breastfeeding is what's best for baby. And, um, and I don't say that. I don't want anybody getting upset with me. How you choose to feed your baby is your choice. If things happen, you have to do what's best for you. Because I don't want to be like, well, Angela Clevenger says breastfeeding is the only way to know this is not true. <laughs> but doggone it, if you're a teacher, you should be able to be guaranteed a clean and safe place to pump. And you should be able to have that in your schedule and that you, somebody should work with you. Flash back to 2004 when my little Emma was a baby. I had nowhere to go except the bathroom. I could kick the principal out of the office. However, if there was a situation that came, she could come in at any time. Now, people who haven't breastfed, being relaxed <laughs> is something that's good. <laughs> It tends to help the milk flow. I had to work it out amongst other teachers. If it rained, it was really hard. But they would, after lunch, take my children outside. And the only place I could find to pump was under my desk. I was interviewed as a part of VEA legislation. And I didn't know that this had such a problem on me. But I remember being under my desk. And images of people in Europe because I watch a lot of documentaries, being under desk and hiding under tables so that the bombs won't hit them is what came to mind. And here I'm trying to do a beautiful thing. So you should not have to you know, be in a restroom, which is uncleanly. You definitely shouldn't have to be under your desk. And doggone it, somebody should work with you and guarantee you some time to pump. And so that was behind the legislation. And it was passed. It was passed. So that was probably one of the ones that I felt like really had made um, I went on to, to serve a term at the VEA uh, State Board where the association makes state decisions. I guess I kind of went on with that, and then I became an administrator. And I believe, you know, I, and I've enjoyed leading, don't get me wrong, but right now, I felt like it was time to go back to the classroom. There's a power to being a classroom teacher and working on that legislative le level and, uh, and many opportunities for leadership when you decide to go back to the classroom, which I, I, deci I had decided I will become active again in the association. Many, many small uh, victories have been won at the local level by concern outstanding teacher leaders who take issues that affect them every day and give them voice at the local level. And there's something very profound. I also found it can make a difference as a leader, but I wasn't as involved. I'm a little bit more removed from the student. And I also have an idea of leadership that I must say has been skewed with 20 some, yeah, I had 20 years of teaching under my belt before I became a teacher. And that skewing is really understanding the plight of the teacher and knowing that one of the number one things that teachers want 
is to be treated as a professional and play an active role in what they do daily. And that that causes leadership at the top to have to be collaborative. It means that it's not a us and them. It's a me and you. And it comes together like this. And the cogs and the wheel work maybe different sizes, but they work in tandem and together. And that is not what I really found um, as a leader, that, that this was a concept that's been written about, taught at the university level. But it is not at all what I found to be the reality. And I still feel the calling. Thank you, Angie. In this episode, I know you've been moved as I have by Angie's homegrown story that inspired her to create change through her teaching and her advocacy work. Watch and listen for part two of Changemaker Angie Clevenger's story being released in the next few days. You can learn how to become a changemaker like Angie by checking out our new course called Changemaker U. You can find the link to learn more in the written version of part two of this conversation with Angie, available at www.blueroadseducation.org slash blog. Thanks for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you'll follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own changemaker journey at www.blueroadseducation.org. We'd love it if you could subscribe to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast and give us a rating on iTunes so that others can find us too. This also helps to elevate the voices of the amazing changemakers you're learning about in our series.